This week on Keeping Faith. I mean, Jesus is kind of radical. A friend of mine gave me a postcard once that said, Obama's not a brown-skinned socialist who gives away free health care. You're thinking of Jesus. You know, evangelical Christian tr- traditions, especially conservative ones, have kind of this right-wing bent. But the God of Scripture is actually quite revolutionary, as revealed in the person of Jesus. <laughs> he goes up and touches lepers. You know, it, it would be like Mitch McConnell going up and like caring for women who had just had abortions. Like, you know, just something that would be so far away from something that a religious leader would do, Jesus goes and does because he's he's iconoclastic, right? Like he wants to break open these expectations and say, no, really, but what are we about? Growing up with a scientist father in one of Toronto's most culturally diverse neighborhoods, Luke LaRock's life looked different than what you'd expect of a traditional Christian upbringing. So it wasn't a surprise when in college, he began to question whether the term Christian even fit him at all. But after years of searching, he came to realize that what really mattered was whether that faith felt true to him, regardless of whether he fit the label perfectly. Luke and I talk about his belief that faith is inherently political, and at the same time, struggles with seeing his faith used for political gain. He shares his challenge with the term evangelical and the deep need he feels for us to have conversations across our divides. And as he leaves a job he loves, he reflects on his deep belief that what we're here to do in the world is so much more than our job titles. Because how do you find belonging when you feel like you don't fit in? This is his story. I'm Maren Smith, and you're listening to Keeping Faith. Keeping Faith is located on Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabek territory in Hamilton, Ontario, and Luke LaRock lives on Anishinaabe Odawa, Ojibwa, Chippewa, Huron-Wendat, Mohawk, and Métis territory in Gravenhurst, Ontario. Curious about whose land you're on? Visit keepingfaithpod.com slash about for a list of Indigenous mapping resources or get in touch with your local Native Center or Council. What is giving you hope right now? And is there a story from your life right now that has connected you with your sense of faith or hope? Yeah, I'm, you know, it's it, it seems like a really dark time right now uh, when I think about you know, politics is certainly at the top of my mind, uh, internationally, Canadian, all of that. And so I, I think one thing that I've been thinking about lately that has been very helpful to me is that uh, with the pandemic and everything, I think that we are becoming, as a community, as a society, we're becoming very aware of the things that we value. Mm. And it's it's making us question the things we do. Uh, and I, I think maybe the story I think about uh, the most. So my my parents are had their 40th wedding anniversary this year, which is great. I'm proud of them. They made it ooh, 40. Uh, but, you know, they were supposed to go on this really big trip um, in like Italy and Paris. And they've been saving up and, you know, it was supposed to be super epic. Uh, and then it, it didn't happen. Like it got canceled, <laughs> just like everything else happened that got canceled. Yeah. And I know if that trip had been canceled for me, I would have been absolutely devastated. And I'm sure they were sad, but I really saw them just react in a really mature way and say, this is bigger than us. Like taking care of the world right now is more than just our trip to Europe. And that gave me a lot of hope because there was a, a real sense of like, this is unfortunate, but it's what needs to happen and is the best. And I'm, I'm really hopeful right now. And it gives me a lot of hope as I see people making those sorts of choices, not only on the big sense, like trips to Europe, but in little senses, little ways like... I would love to see this person, but it's not the best thing to do right now because of COVID-19 or, you know, hey, I'm going to be generous in speaking to this other person about their politics because I don't know their history or where they're from. And I may not agree with them, but I want to respect them. And I, I've just seen that a little bit more, but that is uh, something that I've that has given me hope is that I've seen people aware 
of what truly matters in life and what doesn't matter. And uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that as, as we move forward through this pandemic, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to be going up and down through lockdowns for the next little while, I'm really prayerful that we can hang on to that sense of decency. Yeah, I think that's what you're saying is really true. There, There is a sense of, it's almost like community that people have connected in with, and, and not just community in the sense of the people that you surround yourself with, but also an understanding of more like the interconnected web that we're all a part of on like, you know, a national scale or a global scale. And that that seems to be something that suddenly we're really seeing in a in a really specific way or really, really tangible way through through this pandemic. Is that kind of what you have felt too? Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've had this happen to you yet where you've watched a movie from pre-pandemic and then people are like touching each other or being friendly. And it like, yes. I, you know, for myself, I had this moment of like, you can't do that. And then I remember, yeah, and then there was commercials for a while that said like this, this commercial for Molson Canadian was filmed pre-pandemic. Like there was a little thing at the bottom. It really hit home for me the other day, that interconnectedness you talked about. I was reading an article about sex workers in Canada and how it was some of them were able to qualify for CERB and some of them were not based on who paid their taxes based on their sex work. Mm -hmm. But reporting your taxes for sex work in Canada is a very legal gray area because of the protections that are afforded to sex workers and not. And so it was a story about the sex worker in Manitoba, a mother of four, and she just realized, for the good of my community, I can't actually do my job right now. Even though people were willing to meet with her, she, she basically said, I cannot do this for the good of my community. And I think that's a that's the story that came to mind when you just talked about that interconnectedness. You know, that's not just a client for her anymore. That's a potential connection that could harm other people. And I think it's really thoughtful of her, you know, when for sure it would have been financially difficult for her to put her community ahead of her work like that. And to be a single mother of four, especially, I, you know, I was really touched by that as another Canadian who does not know her. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's that sense that you can't our our sacrifice is for other people. It's mm-hmm. we're not we can't exist in our own bubbles anymore and I think that that was becoming easier and easier in society because, you know, you can hone the news that you see. You can hone what shows up in your social media feed. You can, you know, narrow what you read or you can narrow the people that you talk to. But this has encouraged, I think, people to broaden that perspective a little bit in, in kind of a, an unusual and unexpected way. Mm, I think that's that's a really interesting point because not only can we hone the news, but the news hones itself for us, right? If we think about Facebook algorithms, Google algorithms, uh, and it'd be, I mean, I don't know, maybe this will be a research project in 40 years to look back and see what how Google responded to the pandemic <laughs> by changing algorithms. You know, I, QAnon is this thing that's in the U.S. where people are, you know, really struggling with the truth and what is real and what is not. Yeah. And Facebook and Twitter and Reddit are making choices to remove that information from in front of people's eyes because they consider it dangerous, but it's algorithms that have helped create some of that danger. So social responsibility, to your point about it's not just about me, but it's about caring for others, is not just an individual choice anymore, but a corporate one and a collective one that we all have to choose Yeah. to look out for other people in so many ways. Yeah. And I think the the technology aspect that you've brought up only makes that um, more challenging and more complicated <laughs> mm-hmm. for all of us too. Yeah, for sure. So in talking about, you know, how much the world has changed right now and, and these changes that you're seeing in society as a result of, you know, this strange time that we're in right now, let's go back to kind of where you come from. And I'm curious as to what the world was like for you growing up. What were you taught about the world? Um, and what were you taught about faith and hope? That's such a good question. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mentioned my parents already. They're incredible human beings, and I have so much respect for them. Uh, they have not done simple things in their life, and they've made hard choices for both themselves and for our family that I think have made us better people uh, as a result. Mm-hmm. So I think back to my childhood, you know, I, I grew up in Toronto pretty stereotypical I think and I I should acknowledge off the top right like I'm I'm the kind of person who checks all of the privilege boxes you know I'm white I'm male I'm heterosexual like I'm solid middle class 
you know, with parents who speak two languages. My father was a scientist. My mother was an educator. You know, so there is like, I, <laughs> I won the jackpot in that sense. Um, and yet my parents also tried to make choices to help keep us aware of our privilege. And I, it's so funny because the word privilege is something that means a lot more nowadays but back then, I didn't think about it that way. Mm. So I grew up in Rexdale, which is like northwestern Etobicoke in Toronto. Um, and I, it was a very diverse neighborhood. And I didn't actually clue into that diversity for a really long time. And my parents later in life shared with me that they made the choice to live there, even though they could have lived in what my mom probably would have termed a fancier neighborhood. <laughs> um, but my mom said you know, she didn't want to have a competition with her neighbors about whose lawn looked most perfect. She was more concerned about having good neighbors. And they saw that opportunity in a multicultural neighborhood in Rexdale. And I'm, I think, you know, that has helped form who I am as a person. It's a lot of that I have to lay at the feet of my parents who I think for, you know, everyone has faults, but they worked really hard to make good choices that would expose us to the diversity that exists in things. Um, and that afforded me a lot of opportunity, like I said earlier, but I think that it also, a lot of it came through the eyes of someone who was able to see other people's experiences and especially within a faith community that was very diverse. Um, I would identify as a Christian, I'm a Protestant Christian. Um, I don't actually use the word evangelical anymore because of uh, the current U S president. I feel like he's made that a really dirty word and it's unfortunate because it's lost some of the richness and the value of, of the word evangelical. But I understand for a lot of my friends and my peers, it's a hurtful word. And so I'm careful with it. Um, but the church that I grew up at was uh, what's called the Christian and Missionary Alliance denomination. And it was just so diverse. And that was something that was really important to my parents as well, um, that we were raised in a culture of faith. But my dad being a scientist, you know, there has been a really healthy engagement between science and faith for my entire life. And so it's never been a matter of like, you need to put all of those thoughts about faith aside if you're going to believe in science and you don't need to put science aside if you're going to believe in faith. Mm those two things actually must, in order for our faith to work, those two things must work together in a cohesive way or else it all falls apart. Yeah, that's, it's really interesting. I, I'm struck by you talking about the the diversity that was sort of in all levels of your existence. Within that diversity, though, I'm curious, was there also faith diversity in your community? Because you talked about how you you knew a lot of people through your church, but in going to school or, or in your neighborhood, were you also aware of other people that were being um, raised or, or growing up in different traditions than you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's, I mean, that's, that's part of the beauty, I think, of Rexdale. Um, and if, you know, I don't know if your listeners know Rexdale super well, it's, it's been traditionally seen as like an underserved or community within Toronto but I think there's a richness that comes that can't be defined by economics that exists there that I will always be proud of like that's a heritage that I cherish um, so I, if I think about my parents street there was a couple an older couple who lived on the corner who would have identified I think as atheist um, and they were from Denmark um, and like the nicest guy it was kind of like the house from home alone where there was like the guy with the big white beard shoveling his driveway and like until you got to know him, you were afraid of him <laughs> But once you got to know him, he was actually the nicest guy. And then next to him, there was a man who was an imam um, for the local mosque. And he actually ran a little small Muslim school, like Islamic school within the house for a while. And then next to us was Seventh-day Adventists, which is another Christian tradition, but different from our own in many ways. And then us. And so, like, if I just think there's like seven or eight houses down the block and all of us kind of had different perspectives. And then across the street was a townhouse complex and an apartment building. So... Like, that's just my street. <laughs> like that's, that's just the seven houses, like, walking home from the bus, from the TTC bus to get to my house at the end of the school day when I was in, in high school or university. Like, that was it. Um, so I think that richness really was exposed. I think in, in high school, um, that was a time when I started really struggling with what faith meant to me. Mm. And I think that's, that's somewhere where I, I still, to this day, I think, at a certain point, any child who's raised in a faith tradition has to take the faith of their parents and make it their own faith. Mm-hmm. it's really important for someone at some point to make a choice going from a faithful tradition that is passed down from someone who's older than you, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a respected elder. And at a certain point it has to be internalized and become your own. And I would say 
for me that that experience happened kind of mid high school to the end of university where I really wrestled with faith and wrestled with what it was. Um, I would say when university, I wouldn't, I would have said that I would have had like a faith heritage, but I wouldn't necessarily have seen that faith as my own. And then coming out of university, really realizing how valuable that was to me, probably in the last, I would say year and a half of university starting to realize it. But then <laughs> this is almost embarrassing to say like, trying to graduate from university can be stressful. <laughs> so it's like, you know what, I'm going to think about that <laughs> I've got my degree. But right now, <laughs> I need to really focus on graduating because, oh man, my marks. No, so um, I think about what it would be like to go back and meet some university friends who I haven't seen in a while mm. and then kind of interact with them and, and just get their perspective on, hey, you know, I've probably changed in a faith sense, you know, and, and in this sense, I think more of like religious faith, although I know that faith can be more broadly defined than that i'm sure from the outside i must look like i've changed but I, I feel like faith is something that can be internalized so deeply that people often don't talk about it or there's a fear to talk about it because in in academic settings or in peer group settings where we're all desperate to fit in and belong people can be afraid of it and i'm really learning to embrace the fact that it's not something to be afraid of it's something to cherish and love and I, part of me w is glad for the experience I had walking away from a more traditional faith experience during those years. And part of me really wishes I had stuck with it to see what would have happened. Mm. Yeah. What do you remember, if you think back to that time, what, what were you wrestling with? What was the challenge or were there many that you kind of were holding at that time? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think, I think there's two sides to that. There's the leaving the faith and then the re-entering. And so the, the leaving kind of to what I was saying earlier, it, it happened because it wasn't my own faith. It was the faith of my parents mm. and I could respect it and I could honor it. And when I would be home with my parents, I would go to church with them. But then when I was living, I went, so I lived in Toronto. I went to the university of Toronto. I spent two years living at home, two years living in an apartment near campus. Uh, and so when I left the faith of my youth, that, that faith was one that I just kind of put on the shelf and said, this was lovely and this was a great heritage to come from, but that's not for me anymore. I don't see myself as identifying as a Christian in any way, really. I'm Protestant, Catholic, whatever you want to have. Like, that was just not me. And then the second half of that is coming back to it. And that was where, you know, I spent three or four years wrestling with worldview. And that's, hmm. you know, I I look at I looked at the world and I thought, okay, I'm not going to use my faith as the lens through which I look at these things. But then after wrestling for three or four years, realizing that my worldview didn't line up with my values, unless I took that faith off the shelf and put it back on and made it my own hmm. and, and maybe put it, made it my own is the wrong way to say it, but rather internalized it in a way that I could authentically represent it and be proud of it, as opposed to saying this belonged to someone else and I don't want to wear it. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, do you remember what were the things that you did at that time when you were starting to realize that you wanted to sort of reclaim some of that for yourself? Was there was there something you did that kind of drew you back in or was it a step by step kind of process? I think it was step by step. And then there was like a catalyst moment. Um, so, uh, in, in my graduate, I did a theater performance degree that double major with English and theater performance. Um, and in our fourth year, um, this, I guess is the part of the program, Marin, where people find out that we went to school together. <laughs> so, uh, we were invited to perform in Italy in Milan and we did a show and we did a show of futurism, which is like a, <laughs> I don't even know how to define futurism that, um, and we had a great time. Uh, so for the last year of university, I'd been wrestling with like, okay, some of the things that I value. So I, I really value social justice. I value caring for the poor. I value honesty and integrity and all these things. It, it wasn't the way I was living. My life wasn't lining up with that. Um, mm. I did, I did try to perform as an actor for several years after graduating. But one of the things that I always struggled with, and ultimately I think what drove me away from the theater profession, although I deeply admire performers, but, but my struggle was that it, it felt it's such a selfless art and you must be selfless in order to perform because you have to give of yourself every night. But the profession of performing 
requires a self-centeredness, but I couldn't, I couldn't do the deed in, in the sense of like putting out my resume and chatting people up at parties like that. Just, it, I wasn't built that way. Uh, and so mm-hmm. it became very hard for me to promote myself and it felt very self-promotional and I'm, I'm an idealist. <laughs> so it became hard to be like, I want to do theater, but I must promote myself. Right. Like it was, and I guess that's why people get agents because then you get to put on the veneer of, of, <laughs> of that. Anyway, so I was starting to struggle with all these things, and we did this show in Italy, and I fell, uh, I think in our last show, uh, and I, I do remember that you were there because you, on stage, helped me and, like, created a new play within the play to get me off stage and, like, try to cover the fact that I had broken a chair and fallen through, like, t- and, like, hurt myself on a knee that was already bad from a previous injury. And so our director took me to an Italian ER that night, and I had x-rays, and there was nothing broken but there was some ligament damage so they gave me the italian version of t3s and they were like you can't drink and then we went out to like this great italian restaurant and i was in like a stupid amount of pain taking t3s but not enough of them because there was pain and everyone around me was drinking and having a fantastic time and i just remember having this moment and thinking and this this is having walked away from a faith tradition that was valuable to my family but not necessarily to me saying this cannot be all there is there must be more than this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was like a catalytic moment for me where I said, okay, I've got to choose. Like I, I, because I do, I still to this day believe there's more to life than just what's here on this earth. I think it goes beyond that. But that was the moment where I said there must be like, it, and I, I don't know why, like it was a time in which I was not in a happy place because there was pain. I was questioning like what I was doing, you know, everyone was having a great time except for me. And that was the catalytic moment at which I said, I've got to figure this out because if I don't figure this out, I will always wonder what if, uh, and I'm already a what if wonderer. So that was, that was kind of the first of it. We came back from Italy. Uh, you know, my knee was slowly getting better. Did some rehab and all that. Didn't have any work that summer lined up because I just graduated, spent some time visiting family in the Maritimes where my dad is from. And I can still remember sitting in the back of my dad's van. He was like going to pick up someone from, his brother, his twin brother from his house or something like that. We're going to see my grandmother who's living in a home. And I just remember sitting there and I, I remember saying, okay, God, like if you are there, I'm willing to do this your way, but I'm going to need some help because I don't understand the path forward. And just from that moment, feeling a, a, a stupid amount of peace about it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that is something that is really comforting to me. So to get back to your question from like 47 minutes ago, <laughs> you know, what was I taught about faith and hope? I was provided with a lot of chances to like, I was given every opportunity to make those choices early. And I think I had to walk away from all of it in order to realize how much it meant to me and to make use of the resources I'd been given as a younger person. And boy, am I grateful for it. Like it is just really a valuable part of my life now. Yeah. Yeah. And so kind of speaking of that, where where do you feel in that time since, you know, you were asking those questions at the end of university and to where you are now? What are what is what is your faith like now? What where where does it sit within you and, and how is it a part of your life? Yeah, I I mean, it encapsulates so much of my life. I work at a faith based organization, you know, and I have for the last five years, even even leaving kind of the theater tradition. And moving towards other things, kind of working in nonprofit organization and supporting that, working in the political field for a little while, all of that has been driven by my sense of faith personally. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's something that, and I, I do think, like, I think it, it's something that really does encapsulate everything that you are. Like, a, a faith is so deeply personal that, like I said earlier, it wasn't something I could take off and put on at will. Because I do think it comes back to worldview. I think that our faith, whatever that might be, whether it's you know a traditional religious faith or something that someone sees more as like a you know spiritual practice or whatever, I think it really does help create the lens through which we see our worldview. And that worldview, it's like putting on rose-colored glasses or tan-colored glasses. It affects everything you see and everything you think. Mm-hmm. To take it on and off, I, it would just be so disorienting for me at this point. I don't think I could do it. Yeah. 
And you mentioned these these things like social justice and politics and science and all of this stuff that in in a traditional way isn't a part of you know what I think a lot of people think about faith as um, and religion. But you you also talked you were mentioning just there how that's actually an intricate part of of the way that you feel and and live your faith. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course, I'd love to. Um, so from my reading of the Bible, uh, which is a, a text that I would go back to as kind of like a grounding, centering space for all of my belief system, the person of Jesus of Nazareth, you know, that the Bible would say is the son of God, he's deeply political in what he does. Mm. You know, it is, and he's deeply interested in social justice, right? Like he, he comes so that people would be freed from oppression, like the chains of bondage would be unshackled. And I, I think about Martin Luther King Jr. and the people who led the civil rights movement, like the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s was led by Christian, black Christian pastors and black Christian women who were fighting for freedom after centuries of slavery. Like that, I don't think it's a coincidence that that civil rights movement grew out of the Christian faith tradition because the person of Jesus is deeply interested in, in social justice. And I think social justice broadly defined looks like freedom for people from oppression. Um, mm. So generally, generally speaking, and I, you know, I don't want to be controversial, but like generally speaking, scholars acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth was very likely, even if you don't believe Christian, he was very likely an actual person who lived on this planet, but he was executed by the state for being a political upheaval kind of guy. Right. And that's the Roman empire did not want that. Um, you know, I think, I think that even there, that is the presentation of a worldview that is political, that is, you know, interested in social justice, that wants to see people freed from oppression. I mean, Jesus is kind of radical. Um, a friend of mine gave me a postcard once. I think they'd been down in Washington, D.C., and they gave me a postcard that said, Obama's not a brown-skinned socialist who gives away free health care. You're thinking of Jesus. You know, uh, evangelical Christian tr traditions, especially conservative ones, um, have kind of this right-wing bent God of scripture is actually quite revolutionary as revealed in the person of Jesus. <laughs> you know, he goes up and touches lepers, right? Like what would be, I'm trying to think of like a modern day equivalent. Oh, I can think of some really controversial stuff. So let's go there. But like, you know, it, it would be like the head of the, the Senate in the U S um, like the Republican head, what's his name? Mitch McConnell going up and like caring for women who had just had abortions, like, you know, just something that would be so far away from something that a religious leader would do in that time. Jesus goes and does because he's, he's iconoclastic, right? Like he wants to break open these expectations and say, no, really, but what are we about? And that's been an important part of my faith tradition growing up. Yeah. There's so much to say there. And I, I really do wish sometimes that I could uh, help people understand that there's a, there's a really famous quote, uh, and I'm failing to remember who, who said it, but it said of 100 people, 99, one person will read the Bible and 99 will read the Christian. And I think that in this day and age, that's so true because so many people see what kind of they expect out of traditional evangelical Christians, and they make a decision based on what they see. And uh, another famous quote that I really love is that a church is not, it's not like a hotel, it's actually a hospital for sick people. Mm. And so I think people who have a good understanding of their own faith in terms of traditional Protestant faith understand that they're not high and mighty. They're in definite need of help and we're trying to become better people. Mm. Yeah. I'm curious if you'll speak to this because you mentioned this when we first started talking about the use of the term evangelical and how that has been very much politicized for gain. Your reference was to the U.S. and the political situation there. I, I'm curious on that side, how do you feel as a person of Christian faith to see your tradition being used in that way? It's hard. It's really hard. Um, I said it earlier, like I'm white, I'm straight, I'm male it's very easy for me to pass in whatever community I would want. And so I don't, I don't have to say anything when someone makes fun of Donald Trump or right-wing evangelical Christians of whom I have many, many friends and family who identify as right-wing evangelical Christians. Personally, I don't identify with any political party. 
Uh, I really feel like no one party represents kind of the stuff that Jesus teaches in the Bible or the stuff that even I believe personally. Mm. You know, I if I could create, I mean, we all we could all create our own parties. None of us would look liberal, NDP, conservative, green, communist. There's probably some other parties I'm missing there. <laughs> um, those are the big ones. None of us would ever identify with all of the things because we would always find something. I think that you know the current U.S. president has claimed evangelical Christianity as an advantage for himself because he's dog whistled quite a few times to kind of trigger people dog whistling sorry just being like using language or using statements that certain people will identify with that other people won't hear um yeah so i've I've heard him say things as someone who identifies as christian i've heard him say things that i know will trigger a certain response in other christians that people who aren't christian might not hear or might not respond to and it makes me sad because i don't want I don't want my faith to be used for political advantage. Mm-hmm. And yet I struggle because as I said earlier, my, I, I believe that faith is inherently political. Um, and that's not just my faith. I think anyone's faith is political because it's an active choice to present oneself in one way. And that's, that's really difficult. So I'm hopeful, you know, I, I've said it to a few of my friends. I think the Republican party in the U S needs to do some deep soul searching, whether Trump wins or not. I don't know when this, podcast is going up so maybe we'll know by the time Uh, but it's you know it's um it's hurtful and yet i was taught to turn the other cheek and i think that you know if i can drop the term evangelical in order to share my faith authentically with people i don't mind doing that the the term evangelical literally just means willing to share one's faith with someone else the the greek word is euangelion um which just means gospel you know so it's just a word right and Words are really powerful, but meaning can change over time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. That's, I think, um, yeah, a really, really good point. I think if I were to add one thing, I would just, I would just say to, like, to people who maybe don't identify as evangelical Christians, there are quite a few people who love the Jesus of the Bible and who are deeply appalled by the state of politics everywhere. And it makes them sad. You know, a lot of people I know choose to remain silent about their faith or about their politics because they don't want to hurt other people. And it can look like implied consent or it can look like implied pain, but that's not the case. Yeah, we need, like I said at the beginning, we need to be generous with each other right now. It's hard. Like the world needs to be generous with each other. And and I think, you know, in, in a more broad way, I, I, I do think the world has become a place where we demand of each other immediate and perfect response. And I, I think that there is a really important practice of taking time to really, you know, go inward or think about what you want to share before you do. And I think, I think very much what you're saying, giving each other the space to do that before we make those judgments is important. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mean, it's the reason I left social media and I I did that a couple of years ago. I just couldn't, there's such a divisiveness and this was pre Trump, pre everything. It's um, because of, because of the experience I've had in my life of walking away from my faith and coming back, I've got the, the joyful privilege of having friends on both sides of a lot of decisions and about a lot of thought processes and I consider that to be such an amazing thing because, um, yeah, I, I think I think you've got such such a point there, and we we want to be more inclusive in society, and I, I completely um, understand that inclusiveness is is something we have to be very careful with because on both sides we can choose to include the people we want to include and exclude the people who we don't consider meeting our standards in whatever way. But inclusiveness, by definition, demands that we include everybody, even if we don't agree with them. And on both sides of the the arguments, I've seen people exclude people in the name of inclusiveness, which I think is a little bit ironic. (laughs) And it's sad. It really is sad. Yeah. I'm curious now, you just mentioned walking away from Facebook and leaving something. And then you've talked as sort of a thread through through your life so far about, you know, 
the time when you left your faith and came back. And you're now in a cycle of life where you're also leaving something that is also deeply connected to your faith tradition. And so can you talk a little bit about where you are in your life right now? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for the last five years, I've been the executive director of a Christian summer camp in Muskoka, which is about an hour and a half, two hours north of Toronto. So in 2015, uh, my family uprooted themselves. We had a two-year-old at the time, moved to the bustling metropolis of Gravenhurst, population like 12,000 people at the time, <laughs> uh, and had been running this camp for the last five years. So uh, this is the camp that I grew up at. Uh, my parents sent me here when I was a kid. Um, my wife also attended here as a kid. We didn't meet until we were in our 20s because her parents sent her to family. Like They went to family camps, and my mom will never be caught dead near a camp <laughs> like with her permission. So she sent us just to like youth camps, like to boys camp. And then eventually boys camp and girls camp merge when you're like 16. So we met in our twenties, uh, fell in love as people are wont to do when they're young and in love and all that, um, got married. And, you know, we, um, my wife is a teacher by training, did this undergrad in theater and then did a degree in theology and international development, spent some time living in Africa ended up running for political office, which I'm just going to gloss over super quickly and run away from. I came second, like I did not win, <laughs> came second. And then after that, got this call from the board of Beacon, which is where I work now. And they were looking for a new executive director and they had a couple of other positions open. And Alyssa and I felt like it was the right time for us to move north. And that was in 2015. And we initially made a five-year commitment to stay here. Um, and so that commitment kind of came up in September of 2020. And for the last kind of, I'd say year and a half, like I'd been wrestling with like, okay, you know, it's the, the way that Beacon works is that we're not paid by Beacon. We're, we're technically volunteers within the organization, but we're supported by churches and individuals who value the work we do. So we receive a monthly gift from a separate charity that kind of fundraises on our behalf. Because of the way that all works, Beacon had said, we'd love to have as much notice as possible if, if you were gonna step down and so I'd been prayerfully feeling like, you know, this is a time when I've accomplished a lot of the things that I want to accomplish. I love the people here. I love the organization, but I don't really want to be the guy who makes the budget anymore. Um, <laughs> that is when you grow up as a camp counselor, there's also a lot of fun in like pulling pranks and staying up late and talking with the campers and all of that. And that's just not, that's not what this role is. And so I've been really wrestling with that. Uh, for about a year and a half and wondering what the timing was like it's it's you know people say oh summer camp but we were running you know we were running 10 weeks of summer camp with about 80 to 100 people a week and then we would have every weekend from in september and october and parts of november usually we had people up at camp strategically we were growing our school groups so we would have christian schools and so they got joined us midweek or seminary like people would come up for group rentals for a half week or a full week and then we would take part of november off in december and then in January, we would launch winter camps. February 1st, our registration for the summer opened. And then it would just become this long, quick downhill uh, right until the end of November again. And so that happened four times. And I kind of woke up at the end of 2019 and was like, what just happened? Like, wow. Where did the time go? Like, we've, we've had another child since then. Our daughter is now like seven and losing teeth. And I'm like, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's very busy. And it, there is a cost. There's a cost to every job. And... I really want to be involved with the organization, just not not in this role anymore. And that's it's so strange because parts of me at, at times over the last five years has felt like this could be my forever job, like this could be the job. And then parts of me weren't sure about that. And and then and then the pandemic hit. Like Alyssa and I had made this decision that we were gonna tell the board of directors, like, hey, you know, at a certain point in the next year or so, like I think that's gonna be it for me. And that was maybe like February. And then the world shut down. I was like, well, this would be a terrible time to tell people that I want to leave. So we ended up running camp online for kids this summer, which sounds really terrible and was like the best thing in the world. It was called Beacon Unlimited because, you know, unlimited camp for a limited summer or something like that. And we basically just like baked with kids online and played Lego with them and taught Christian values using Bible stories and, you know, doing first memorization from scripture verses and all this stuff. And anyways, and so after all this, then announcing at the end of that, that I was going to be stepping down. There's something bittersweet about it, but Mm. it's so weird to say that I feel like I'm going out on top uh, after a summer where I didn't actually get to run camp. Uh, And I have so many good memories from this last summer that I'm going to cherish forever. Yeah. 
So you said that at the end of 2019, you kind of woke up and were like, whoa, what just happened? Can you talk a little bit more about what that experience was like for you and and the thought process that that led you down? Yeah, I I think that it probably, I don't want to like misrepresent it, that it like was like four years later, what the, um, (laughs) certainly there was times within that, like Ellis and I, um, we love the TV show, The West Wing, which probably gives away a lot about my personality. I just love, I love the State of the Union episodes. So we started doing this thing called State of the Union where she and I would go out for a really fancy dinner. When we lived in Toronto, we would go to the CN Tower because it was like a prefix menu for like $45. You could go to the top of the CN Tower, have a three-course meal, and you got to stay at the CN Tower for the rest of the night. So we would like do that every year. And it was at the 2019 State of the Union that I felt like it really started to be implanted in my heart. That like, I've done what I've come to do. So I, I think for me, like, it wasn't so much like a wake up like in one moment and just realizing and reevaluating, but it was this constant, am I where I'm supposed to be? Mm-hmm. Um, I spent some time a long time ago now uh, just kind of wrestling with like, what is a person's calling on their life look like? Hmm. And, and I'm someone who I've just realized over time and, and through the process of discernment that I'm someone who is a catalyst. Like I, I feel very called to help identify areas requiring change. Mm-hmm. And that's my, that's my job. I'm not someone who maintains things super well. I can, but it's unpleasant for me because I'm so I'm very entrepreneurial. I love creating and pushing the envelope. And sometimes even with this camp that we ran this summer, I created it in like two weeks. Our board said, we need to offer something this summer, go. And two weeks later or something like that, we came back with this plan and they said, yes. And then I looked at Alyssa, who's our program director. And I said, you got to run this now. She's like, are you insane? It's like kind of a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Um, All of these things are things that are very entrepreneurial and Certainly with COVID, you know, there's entrepreneurial things to come coming up for any organization that wants to survive. But I, I was just see, sensing in myself that I've done the things that I was called to here. Mm. And to continue in this path would require a lot of energy that I very likely don't have. And that would be a disservice to the organization and to myself and to my family. I, I have a tendency to work too hard sometimes. Like I'll, I'll go and go and go and go like a boom and bust cycle. Mm-hmm. That's not healthy. And that's something, you know, it, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, you can often tell how stressed I am, but how much weight I gain, <laughs> probably not the only person who experiences that. But mm-hmm. if I'm periods of high stress, because I stress eat and I don't exercise, my weight goes up. And I'll identify that and I'll start taking action. And then in times of low stress, I'll lose weight. And it's, it's funny because I know people who are the opposite So all of these things kind of, you know, these are like physiological triggers and emotional triggers and just self-awareness triggers that really like help me discern this is the time. And I love, I love the people who I've served with at Beacon and our board of directors has worked really hard and there was just never going to be a good time to tell them I wanted to leave. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so, you know, ripping the bandaid off in early July of this year was really hard. Um, That was hard. Yeah. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about a calling as something that's that's more than just a job and that if a job no matter how you much you love it and no matter how successful you are at it is no longer serving the calling then it's time to move on is is that fair yeah yeah i think that i mean that goes back to my what i was saying earlier about worldview and faith tradition you know, if, if I truly believe that everything I believe about my faith imbues everything about my life, mm. then my calling is necessarily bigger than just my work. Mm-hmm. I think if I had enough time with anyone, I could help them believe that too. <laughs> because although we might do specific things, we might be an accountant, we might be a musician, we might be a physiotherapist. All of those things serve greater purposes than just those individual things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've seen people in all of those fields do wonderful things that are far more than just the sum of their job description. And so, you know, I I mentioned earlier that I'd spent this time trying to discern that, you know, I talked with this catalyst idea. The other word that kind of goes with that is this, this word authentic. Mm. I wear my heart on my sleeve all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm very, I'm, this is what you get. Like there's so little pretension to me that I think some people don't believe me when I say there's no pretension to me. Mm. So that those two things go together very carefully for me. And, and to this point about this transition, I would not and I could not have hidden how I feel from the board of directors at Beacon, nor do I think I should have. I understand that, you know, some people have very few choices in life. 
you know, if you've got a job, you can't afford to lose it. You've got to put food on the table for your kids, like all of those things. Mm-hmm. I, I do understand. Like I, I, even saying that, I recognize the privilege and saying like, oh, I can choose to say that I don't want to do a job anymore. But I also believe that if we're not doing something that ultimately satisfies us, there will be such a deep sense of personal dissatisfaction mm. that I would challenge someone to say, like, is it worth it? And that's important too. Uh, we're all, you know, <laughs> I think our generation is very attuned. We've watched the generations before us do many great things. I think about the greatest generation who went and fought World War II and then you know, people who fought for rights and did all these amazing things. And then people who maybe didn't do jobs that made them super happy because they loved their family so much. And then here comes us who get the participation trophies for doing T-ball. <laughs> you know, that's not, I, I am a product of that generation, but my poor mother, you know, saved all that stuff. She recently gave me two Rubbermaid bins that were probably about 80 pounds each. And she had somehow saved every single piece of homework I had done that had a mark on it for my entire elementary, secondary, and post-secondary education. And she was like, I've decided this is time for you to have these. And I think if she listens to this podcast, she's about to find out that I kept two pieces of paper <laughs> from those two bins. Because that's just not what I value. And our, our millennial generation, I think, has got a very finely tuned sense to what matters. Mm-hmm. And we don't always express it well, which is where I think people make fun of millennials. Mm-hmm. But I, I think we've watched our peers and our progenitor like our, our elders and we we understand that some things matter and some things don't and sometimes it comes out really badly and sometimes we're really terrible about it but we do have that sense and that authenticness that we we are seeking authentic experiences and ideals and we're not willing to satisfy we're not willing to settle in order just to satisfy like a financial urge some people are but i don't think as as many of us are yeah but i i think what you're saying is really true that it's a uh there's not the same value of tangible things. Like you're literally talking about items that came out of a bin or labels, you know, as you were saying in a little bit earlier of a job and a job description, it's a search for something that has a deeper connection to you. And and that's what makes work important to, I think us and I, and what I hear you saying as well. Mm -hmm. And ultimately I think, everyone in the world, whatever generation, we're searching for satisfaction. For me, a lot of that satisfaction comes from my faith and my belief in a higher power that is bigger than just me and that my calling might serve that higher power. Mm. You know, God is, is, is how I would define that in such a way that it would be helpful. Yeah. So I'm curious as well, because we are living, as we've kind of talked about through this whole conversation in these unprecedented times where a lot of people have lost things or or had to leave things that they, you know, that they felt defined themselves in so many ways. How have you in, in taking this step to leave something that did define so much of your life? How are you looking to the future and how are you finding a sense of grounding, even though not only do you not know what's coming next for yourself, we also don't know what's coming next for the world. Yeah, it's, I'll be honest, like for all of the bravado that I might've presented, you know, talking about this, I'm, I'm someone who does think about the future a lot. Mm. Um, I had a friend, a dear friend recently challenged me and saying like, you need to stop asking what if about everything Mm. because some things are just going to happen and you cannot know and he, and he was right. I mean, he has spoken truth into my life several times over the last decade, for which I'm very grateful. Mm. But, you know, I'm I'm someone who asks a lot of what if. So, you know, I've, I've left, I've announced that I'm leaving this job. You know, it's not going to be for another at least eight months, nine months, if not longer, because the, the process of finding a new director of Beacon is intentionally slow in order to test and make sure that that person is going to be the right fit. So in one sense, it, it's easy for me to look to the future personally, because I've got this really long runway, which I mean, if, if anyone listening has got the opportunity to give himself a long runway, whether it's by starting training at night or, you know, whatever, I mean, strong recommend on that. Um, ultimately, for me personally, where I find the ability to make those decisions for the future is, is believing that there's a bigger plan than just me. Mm. Um, that comes from my faith and, and what I've you know, I believe that God has got a bigger plan than just Luke and that I do fit into that plan, that I'm not, you know, I'm not worthless. I have value in the eyes of God. Every person does. But my part in the plan 
is going to happen and it's going to be okay. I think for some, some of my friends who are Christians, even with COVID, it's really given them uh, a sense of peace knowing they're like, you know, I'm, I'm being wise. I'm wearing a mask. I'm being cautious around others. I'm not trying to get anyone sick, but ultimately my time is my time. And that, that gives them a sense of peace, even while wearing a mask or, or things like that to say, you know what? It's going to be okay. I've also seen the flip side where people are like, I don't need to wear a mask. Jesus loves me. It doesn't matter. I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, that's not necessarily a um, epidemiologically res- responsible position. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think this, this belief in a higher plan or a bigger plan certainly brings reassurance and comfort and peace, knowing that it's part of something else and that it's, it doesn't just have to be me. I'm not alone in it. I can make decisions and I can be wrong and it's still going to be okay. That is really important to me. Yeah. This is a a sentiment that I have heard echoed a lot throughout the people that I've interviewed on this podcast from atheists to conservative Christians to practicing Jews, you know, that there is a a certain amount of, you know, growing and, and being a, a spiritual person in the world where you come to understand that, you have to let go of a certain amount of control that, you know, there is this illusion a lot in the world right now that we can, you know, manifest everything that we want or that, you know, we can live the life exactly the way we plan it. And that, that can be a dangerous thing in some ways, because then you can get really caught off guard when the world doesn't work that way for you. And, and so what I'm hearing a little bit is, is that there's actually comfort in not having control for you. Yeah. And it's so funny. You even like that, that word control is, is that same friend who talked to me about the what ifs, hmm. you know, a little while ago, I'd say one or two years ago said to me, you say the word control a lot. And it was just like, we'd gone for a run. Like, can I, can I say something? And I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And he said that. And I was like, like hit me like a load of bricks. Mm. And that has been a process for me over the last couple of years, even leading into this decision to leave. I made the decision to leave. So in one sense, I took control, like air quotes, took control of the situation mm-hmm. by choosing to leave. But I'm putting myself into a position of openness that doesn't have, like, I, I, I don't really know the future. I can't know the future. And it's... Yeah, you, you, I think you touched on it nicely there. There's like a certain amount of release mm. that comes from understanding that we don't have ultimate control over everything. I think certainly there's day-to-day choices that we can make. You know, do I wear a blue tie or a red tie? <laughs> I don't know. I don't wear ties. I'm a camp director. Um, but it's it's so freeing not to fret. Uh, and that's it's so and I you know, that's so hard to say right now because you know. People are, people are dying because of an illness that didn't exist maybe 12 months ago. And that's, that's scary, right? And it's mm-hmm. so many people are choosing to stay home. I have friends I haven't seen in a long time because they've tried to keep it as tight as possible in terms of their connections. And I respect them for that. And only recently, I mean, I, my brother was married a couple of weeks ago on a weekend and I was extra careful in the three or four weeks leading up to it. But I found such a sense of release after that to say, I can let go of that particular <laughs> worry. Mm-hmm. It's it's a lovely thing not to have to worry. Yeah. Yeah. So before I get to my last couple of questions for you, I just want to give you a space. Is there anything else that you want to say? Anything that maybe came up in our conversation as we were talking or anything you think that you didn't get to that you want included as part of our conversation? I think... Um, I think as I, as I reflect on the things that we've said, yeah, I, I, be so neat to put people who don't agree with each other in a safe space kind of room where they could talk to each other, because I feel like it would do the world so much good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my heart breaks for the divisiveness because I feel that if we could get past that, it would, it would benefit people so much, mm-hmm. whether they're from a faith tradition or political tradition or especially right now with Black Lives Matter, like ethnic traditions. And yet, I think we can make that choice every day mm-hmm. to put ourselves in that room with that person. Um, and that's something that I've just, it's been hitting me as I've talked about. Like, I even didn't think about this until we were talking about it. I was like, wow, I didn't really experience a lot of different, uh, a lot of diverse types of diversity growing up. Socioeconomic, racial, faith traditions, you know, all of these things. And I feel privileged for it 
I'm not, I'm not special. I certainly make mistakes and I have prejudicial biases that I wish I didn't and work actively working to fix those. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that we can all choose every day to make those choices. And I think that might be part of the solution the divisiveness that exists right now is that if we give ourselves the opportunity to hear people and to, <laughs> but, uh, you know, talk less, smile more, uh, is, is a theme that if you, if anyone's heard Hamilton, they would, they would identify with that, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the show, it's, it's made fun of as like this thing to be derided. You know, the, the show is very much like you need to make a stand and you need to, and I agree that we need to be stand firm on our convictions. I, I'm sure of that. But there's something really beautiful about talking less. That's something I'm working on as a talker and just smiling and listening to people. That, that, that is something I'm taking away from this conversation. Yeah. So the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines faith in three ways. One, as an allegiance or duty that you have to something. Two, as a belief or trust in something greater than yourself. And three, as something you believe or know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so I want to put each part of this definition to you as a question. So for you in your life, what do you feel a duty or allegiance to? Uh, I, I feel such a duty of allegiance to my family mm-hmm. in, in the broader sense, like not just my biological family, but those who I consider to be like, you know, collected family, mm-hmm. chosen family, which is meaningful to us as this parents who have adopted. Um, we, we really see that that can happen in a myriad of ways. Um, and so it's not necessarily something that is like a part of my religious faith tradition, because the people in that family for me come from so many different walks of life. So I would say that, yeah, a duty, I certainly feel an allegiance to chosen and biological family. And I'm, I'm grateful that biological family for me is, is good. I know that's not the reality for everyone mm-hmm. and chosen family is so excellent as well. Yeah. And what do you believe in or trust that is greater than yourself? Yeah, I, I, for me, this one it really comes down to, you know, a, a faith tradition that is more religious in nature, you know, spiritual tradition. Mm-hmm. As someone who walked away from this, uh, my faith in for, you know, five, four or five years, it's almost strange to feel so certain about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to like trust that there's a God who loves and cares for me and wants to see me happy and that I will find my ultimate happiness in him. Uh, it's so like, sometimes I just marvel at it that, you know, I, I gave this up. I don't think, I didn't think this, how could I have come back to this? It's not possible. And yet there is such a largeness in my heart when I consider the love that I feel from God mm. that it, I, you know, it, to go back to the word evangelical, like I want people to know what that feels like and not because I'm trying to convert anybody, but because I just think it's the most beautiful feeling in the world to be loved and known in that way. Um, yeah, it makes me emotional, actually, I'm surprising myself um, that it it could be that. And I didn't, you know, when I walked away from faith and certainly even before that, didn't understand that mm-hmm. as a child or a young person, a youth, <laughs> and then to walk away from it completely and then to rediscover it, to feel it so, so deeply is just such a majestic and, and lovely thing. And I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And I in the, in the best, happiest sense, I want people to know what that feels like. I wish that for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you believe in or know beyond a shadow of a doubt? And I like to always frame this for people as I believe that there's something that we all have at the core of us that we feel to be true even if it doesn't make logical sense to us. <laughs> One day the Montreal Canadiens are going to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> it's hard. 
in my lifetime that is gonna happen and i'm gonna cry and yeah uh no that's i mean <laughs> i do want that and that if it doesn't happen i would be sad but i don't know that beyond a shadow of a doubt for all the money they spent this off season i don't know that um yeah i i'm gonna steal a little bit from the second question i feel like they tie in um i know i'm loved and that's not something I've always known. Hmm. I've struggled to feel loved and to love myself. And a lot of, you know, as someone coming out of a faith tradition, which in its best iterations, people feel beautiful and loved, but in some of its not so great iterations, people can feel condemned. Uh, that, that sense of love is wonderful. You know, that, that for me comes in the person of Jesus Christ and, you know, a Judeo-Christian God, Yahweh, who loves unconditionally, which I can't do myself. Like, I can't, I cannot love unconditionally. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my family. But even then, you know, I joke sometimes with my wife, like, I love you, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> that kind of thing. Like, but, but an unconditional love, that, that feeling is the best. And it, it is, um, it's really special to feel unconditionally loved. And uh, yeah, I, I wrestle sometimes with the question of, okay, because I believed this in my childhood, is it something that is just like a leftover remnant of a childhood belief mm -hmm. that somehow I've like reintegrated re into my life or like adapted to make it work for an adult Luke as opposed to a child Luke. But I think back to there's like moments of certainty that I've had or experiences I've had that, feel almost miraculous in nature, but personal senses of peace and surety and love that I cannot explain within myself. Like I, I, you know, you talked about manifestation, like I couldn't, based especially on what I know of myself and how I am, you know, how I have struggled in the past with love and loving myself, I cannot see how I manifested that within myself. It had to come from somewhere else because I didn't have that capacity. And then I was, I was given it as a gift hmm. and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. So do you have a practice that you do on a regular basis? It could be weekly or daily or monthly or yearly, but something that connects you with your personal sense of faith or hope. Yeah, so I I use I've I've recently I would say in the last year really tried to take advantage of the technological advances that exist within our world for my own personal faith practice, uh, and so for me there's a couple of different things that I've chosen to do. I love podcasts. I'm, I love music and I, I love listening to music. So uh, one of the things that I've done over the last year is I've chosen to kind of curate my podcast playlist in such a way that it focuses on aspects of my faith that I want to explore or develop. So, you know, whether that is listening to a specific teacher for a period of time or, you know, so our, our local church that my wife, my family attends, my wife and I, we like the sermon is posted as a podcast on a weekly basis. And so, you know, listening to that while I'm doing the dishes or things like that, I've, uh, I'm someone, I love technology. I've always loved technology. You know, I've always wanted to have like the latest and greatest. Um, so I've, I've really tried to turn my phone particularly into a tool that I can use for reminding myself to be faithful. Hmm. Um, so that, you know, I talked about the podcast. One thing I've done recently that I've really started to love is almost like just a, um, kind of like a, a Tibetan gong or whatever. <laughs> like, like I've just set prayer reminders throughout the day for different hmm. people in my life. And if, if I know someone is experiencing something, you know, I, I have a friend who uh, is a minister. And so they, they've always said that Friday and Saturday are difficult for them because it's supposed to be a day off, but it's also like the day before the big day, mm -hmm. um, you know, so Friday at five o'clock, I've just set a reminder that he and his wife's name come up on my phone and it, I just stop and I pray for them. Mm. And it's to the point now where like, if I'm not near my phone and I see it's five o'clock on Friday, I know to pray for them. Like that's been, that was how it started. It was the first one that it started with. Um, and then it's just started to kind of add on to other people in my life. Um, so like family members, um, it might, and sometimes I just pick arbitrary, like 
intervals of time, like every four days, which doesn't line up in the week very nicely. Um, but, you know, it just it shows up at nine o'clock or one o'clock. And it's really helped to remind me to think of others and not just myself, which I think is a big part of prayer. Mm-hmm. And so I've been I've been really enjoying trying to manipulate technology into a more useful spiritual practice, even down to, you know, using my smartwatch when I'm praying. I, I used to pray and be like, I hope I'm not missing anything or whatever. And so now it's like so dumb, like just set a timer and then I can just let myself completely go. Mm. And when my wrist vibrates, I know I've got to do something else. Um, and that has been so lovely for me as a, as a spiritual person to kind of transform something that doesn't always have great connotations and it like, but trying to use them for good. <laughs> um, not that phones are inherently evil. They're just a tool. We choose what we do with them. And so I'm trying to choose to use them for good in that sense, in, in a spiritual sense. What strikes me so much about what you just described is how much it feels like you've taken something that's ancient and updated it. You know, a whole region of this world has call to prayer that, you know, mm. is broadcast throughout cities, you know, and regions all day to to give people that reminder of taking that time out. And you've made that personal in in a way using the technology you have around you. Yeah. I mean, even even just thinking of like ancient monasteries and there's a great book. If I mean, it's a Christian book, so it might not suit everybody. There's a there's a pastor from Vancouver named Ken Shigematsu. He's written this book called God and My Everything. Uh, which just talks about rhythms of life and daily practice. And it is, I mean, I would highly recommend it just as a human interest read, but it's just so interesting considering, you know, how does exercise, how does, you know, sexual intimacy relate to my daily life and my daily practice? And that was kind of what got me started on thinking about like, okay, there are rhythms to our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, even the idea of stopping eating at a certain time of day and beginning to eat to break the fast in the morning you know, those rhythms, I think, are really deeply ingrained within our human self. And it is, we can't ignore those. So I, I, I love, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about calls to prayer, but it's so true. Like, this is something that is global in many senses. And the idea of updating it for the, oh, I feel very cool now, as opposed to just something <laughs> I did in my own little corner of the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can find Luke's Praying with Technology practice in the Spiritual Practice Library at keepingfaithpod.com library, where you can listen to him guide you through it and try it out for yourself. Keeping Faith is produced by Ron Kelly and Marin Smith, and Ron Kelly composes our enchanting music too. If this episode connected with you, subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. They really do help spread the word about the show. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Keeping Faith Pod, or send us an email at hello at keepingfaithpod.com. We love hearing from you. Next week, we'll talk to Professor Stephen Sharper about his life growing up in the forests of Connecticut during the social justice movement of the 1960s and 70s and how all this taught him it's possible for us to make meaningful change in the world. But until then, I'll be holding you in hope and faith. I'm Marin Smith. See you next week.